Hello, welcome to the Ravenscroft podcast. I'm Georgie Fletcher, a portfolio manager at Ravenscroft, and I'm here with Kevin Bosher. Hello, I'm Kevin Bosher, and I'm Chief Investment Officer for Ravenscroft. So, Kevin, inflation seems to be dominating the headlines at present. Were you surprised by the very strong numbers recently released in the US? No, it wasn't a surprise to either myself or to central banks or to most forecasters. It was absolutely clear that there was a big drop in inflation this time last year due to the economic shutdowns. And the base effects of that simply means that we were expecting very big numbers this time around. It's fair to say that the numbers were probably bigger than expected in the US. And I think that's because some of the economic statistics at the moment are being hugely distorted as a, res- a result of, of both demand um, supply f- uh, demand and supply factors. For example, with there being a shortage of semiconductor chips, that's led to big drops in car production, which has meant that as demand picks up, people are having to buy second-hand vehicles. Hence, we've seen a huge rise in, in that particular space. Also, everyone seems to want to move house at the moment or do renovations to their houses. As we have supply shortages, again, due largely to the shipping of raw materials, raw material costs have gone up, labour has gone up, and again, that's led to a huge um, impact on prices in those areas. So, so at the moment, we are seeing the impact of both base effects and also this distortion to supply and demand across a range of goods and services. And hence, for that reason, it wasn't really a surprise. So you sort of mentioned um, supply shortages there. There seems to be many factors putting up with pressure on inflation, including supply shortages, rising commodity prices, wages and rising transport costs. Do you expect this to continue? Um, I think it will, and I think central banks expect that as well. Um, The worst of the economic numbers were probably last May or June time. Therefore, we've still got to get through that base effect um, over the next few months. And I think it's going to take a long time for these distortions in supply and demand to really work with their way through the system and therefore for the demand and supply of various goods and services to return to some sort of, of trend and, and, and mean and, and average. So, yeah, I think it will continue for a while longer. Um, but again, I think the key thing here is that markets now appear to be relatively relaxed and expectant of that, as do most economic forecasters and central banks. So kind of on central banks, um, they seem to think that the current rise um, in inflation is in transition and markets appear quite relaxed. Do you sort of agree with that assessment? Yes, I do. Uh, And I think there's a number of reasons for that. What we're seeing at the moment is is a one-off price relative shock across various goods and services as a result of the, the sheer impact of that economic shutdown last year, which caused a, a massive recession and the subsequent recovery that we're having, which is both strong and very fast, and therefore we're getting these distortion effects. So I think it's, you know, I think it's going to be, be a long time um, before we know the true impact of whether these short-term relative price shocks become something of a longer-term issue. At the same time, there's a number of very, very strong secular disinflationary forces that have been operating across the global economy for the past two or three decades. 
These include an aging demographic, and as people get older, they tend to spend less and save more. It includes high and, and rising debt levels across the global economy. Debt levels are, are at a significantly higher rate today than they were even 12 years ago during the great financial crisis. As people have more debt, again, they tend to spend less, save more, and repay some of that debt, and so on. Also, we have the work, the fact that the global economy has slowed over recent decades. So long-term growth in the major economies, US, UK, Europe, um, is much lower now. And that generally tends to, to coincide with low inflation. And then, of course, we've also had a global excess of savings with this demographic overinvestment, and again, puts downward pressure on prices. And then finally, we're seeing huge disruption across many industries through technology, whether it, and, and that, that's increasingly accelerating in the post-pandemic world. So whether it's robotics, whether it's 5G or AI, all of this te technological revolution, again, puts downward pressure on prices because it both boosts productivity um, and also substitutes capital for, for labour. So for all those reasons, I think we're going to continue to to um, see it's going it's to be very uncertain um, and central banks are looking through the fog of all this uncertainty um, as to whether they really think this short-term inflation rise is going to become more permanent. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's there's lots of reasons why um, it's way too early to, to make a call yet, whether the pickup in inflation we're seeing is going to translate into a longer-term problem. Okay, so kind of um, switching gears slightly to stimulus, um, one of the main arguments put forward by those um, that do believe inflation is a longer term problem is that the current fiscal and monetary policies being followed by the US and others is similar to the late 1960s and 70s. Would you say you agree? There are definitely some similarities, and the main similarity is the fact that back then, uh, an inflation rose pretty much from 1965 through to 1980 from 2 percent up to a peak of around 14 percent. And there were some similarities in, in, in that that period coincided with a huge fiscal spending program and following Keynesian policies by the US government. Basically, the US government were initially fighting um, both the Viet were pursuing a guns and butter policy, whereby they were fighting the Vietnam War and having to pay for that at the same time, same time as they were fighting um, racism, income inequality and poverty in the US. So they went on this huge fiscal spending spree, um, which was certainly a key factor in driving up money supply and driving up inflation. Also back then, the oil price effectively went up by a factor of 10 over during the 1970s. Um, firstly, the oil price more than doubled in the early 70s on the back of the Yom Kippur War and an OPEC oil embargo. Um, and then it, it more than doubled again um, in the late 70s due to uh, revolution and, and supply disruption in Iran. So you had almost a tenfold increase in the oil price back then. And the US was a major oil importer back at that time. So that had a huge impact on, on the US economy and inflation. Um, also, 1971, the US left the gold standard, and that led to a 10% depreciation in the dollar, which again added to the, the US importing um, in inflation. So for, for, so for all of those reasons, I think we, we saw a very unusual period where when we had this oil price shock as well back then, because the government was, in, was intent on, on also fighting those, those still paying for that guns and butter policy, what happened is the Fed 
and then printed lots of money as well to effectively monetize this increase in the oil price because the US was a major manufacturer. It didn't import much oil and the economy was already stagnant. So the US, uh, the Fed effectively printed lots of money, which again added to these inflationary pressures. So yes, it's true. The US government today is pursuing Keynesian policies again, where fiscal policy, lots of government spending, but backed up by a very accommodative central bank, keeping interest rates at zero, doing lots of QE, printing lots of money. That bit is similar. But the key difference is we had all those other factors which added to inflationary pressures back then, which we don't have today. Um, and also, um, as well, I think back then, the US economy was already um, firing on all cylinders. It was already pretty hot and the inflation genie was out of the bottle, whereas again, we don't have that today. And then finally, I think for me, um, there was, you know, wage, wage, basically wage pressures came under um, upward um, pressure back then because unions represented about 25% of most workers, whereas today there's only about 10% of workers are in, in unions. So unions haven't got that same bargaining power putting upward pressure on wages today that we had back then. And if anything, workers are not only competing with each other for jobs in the US, but they're also competing with cheaper labour um, elsewhere through globalisation. So some similarities, but, but many differences. Okay, so we've, we've sort of spoken about um, quite a lot of inflationary factors um, and you sort of discuss your main arguments, but is there sort of anything else, um, any kind of other arguments for inflation becoming a more sort of persistent and longer term issue? Well, I think the main, the main proponents that inflation is going to become a longer term issue are based around the fact that the US is pursuing this very aggressive fiscal fiscal expansionary policy um, at the same time as the central banks have been very accommodative, i.e. it's back to that comparison with the, the Keynesian policies. And I think people who believe inflation is a long-term problem simply think that all this US government spending at a time when the global economy is recovering very powerfully from, from the COVID-related um, recession is eventually going to lead to um, aggregate demand um, exceeding aggregate supply across a wide range of, of goods and services, which will obviously put upward pressure on, on prices. A second key factor, I think, for inflation to take hold would need to be that monetarists believe that inflation at the end of the day is all about um, excess money in the system. And it's true that with central banks having been printing money for a long time and interest rates near zero, US money supply in particular has grown at a very, very fast rate for the last two or three years. So there's a lot of excess money out there in, in the system. And monetarists believe that this excess money is a key factor in leading to higher inflation. And the reason for that is that if there's a lot of money in the system, people tend to spend more. Um, and obviously the velocity, the circulation of money um, tends to increase as either people borrow more as well or banks uh, lend more. And when you have an increase in velocity of money, that tends to follow through to, to higher inflation. And then finally, there's also a view that as the, power, as the economy recovers powerfully um, and as the US Fed prints lots of money and the dollar continues to weaken, that will put upward pressure on commodity prices and therefore economies will continue to, to suffer from um, rising commodity prices at the same time as a weaker dollar, which again would, would put upward pressure on, on inflation. So those are the key arguments in favour of inflation. Um, but as I've already said, there's lots of uh, reasons that counter many of them. For example, there's no guarantee that 
people are going to go on a huge spending spree, even though it's true that there's a lot of savings in the system and there's a lot of pent-up demand for people coming out of lockdowns and so on. The fact of the matter is, with lots of debt around, with that ageing demographic, people, and there's still a lot of uncertainty as to exactly how the economic reopenings go, exactly how quickly and does life get back to normal and so on, there's no guarantee that people are going to spend their savings. And if they're having to spend more today to buy things for the home or to or for air travel or for restaurants, um, unless they increase their savings or borrow more, that simply means there's less money to spend on other things. So there's no guarantee that they're going to go on this spending spree. Um, they might still prefer to pay down debt and to hold on to those savings given the uncertainty. Also, there's no guarantee that banks are going to want to lend more, um, given the the, the 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 lack of clarity about the long-term impact of of the pandemic and some of the tough regulatory capital requirements, and the risks of rising interest rates if inflation do do go up. Uh, and from a company perspective, many people who think inflation is going to be a problem expect companies to go on a huge investment spree to uh, meet all this excess demand and growing demand again companies are only likely to do that if they get more certainty that longer term um, we are going to get the, these these impacts um, that the supply and demand issues are, are going to be more of a, a long-term factor so lots of confusion um, it's a very hazy environment uh, a very foggy environment for many even central banks with all their expertise and resources um, don't really know for sure um, what the likely impact will be yeah that you know two sort of very fair sides of the argument there so I, I guess it's fair to say the jury's still out on whether the current spike um, in inflation is in transition um, or if it's sort of going to become a bigger problem so so what are the main things that you'll be monitoring um, over the next few months would you say Okay, so I think there's three or four things, and just before I say that, I think there's one other factor. I think that we've all, we've two other key factors that we've got to remember here around this overall picture, which for me, sort of, is another reason why the jury is is still out, and I'm not sure. And the, the first one is that on on the arguments for long-term inflation, it's true that both governments and central banks want inflation much higher to inflate away and grow their way out of this big debt problem that we have. So if you get higher inflation, that leads to higher nominal growth and hence it reduces the value of debt. So one of you know, so both governments and central banks have both the incentive and motivation to try and get inflation higher. And arguably they have the tools through um, quantitative easing um, keeping interest rates um, low, forcing institutions um, to buy bonds and, and other high risk products and so on. So that's one factor in favour. And another factor against, and why again I think the jury's still out, is that a lot of the excess and aggressive policy that we're seeing is focused in the US. If you look at Europe, if you look at Japan, there's still it's still clear that you don't have the same excesses of policy. You don't you don't have upward pressure on inflation you're seeing in the US. In fact, if, if Japan and Europe are still struggling with disinflation and deflationary pressures, and they're a major part of the of the global economy. At the same time, as China is actually already tightening policy modestly. So this, the world's second largest economy is tightening policy. So again, all of those act as offsets to to the US, and it could well be that. The impact long term of, of this excessive US policy is not higher inflation globally. It might be higher inflation in the US, but it might be through a weaker dollar 
or a much wider trade deficit in the US where it has to import its way out of the problem as the US economy is growing at a faster rate than, than elsewhere. Um, so again, two other contrast, contrasting factors. So what am I going to be looking for? Three or four things. Firstly, we're going to have to look for evidence as to whether spenders, whether consumers really do draw down their savings and in, go on a massive spending spree uh, over the next few few months and, and, and year or so. Secondly, we need to see whether the US gets another very aggressive fiscal policy, um, fiscal spending program through. Um, it looks unlikely that Biden's going to be able to achieve the, the huge investment in infrastructure uh, and spending that he wants to do. So we need to look at whether they get that, that next spending tranche through. Um, and then I think, thirdly, we need to look for what I call sort of second round effects. So second round effects from an inflation perspective would be, for example, whether we do start to see demand really pick up in excess of supply across a, a wider range of goods and services that put upward pressure. We need to see whether um, wage pressures increase, whether we see high, high wage increases across, again, a wider range of, of industries and sectors. We need to see whether companies are able to sustainably put up prices. Um, and also whether psychology takes hold. If psychology, inflation is, is as well as a monetary phenomenon, it's a psychological one. If consumers believe that the prices of things are going up tomorrow, they're likely to bring forward their spending plans and spend more today in anticipation and, and hold less cash. If companies think that their input costs and raw materials are going to go higher and that the demand's going to be there, then they're going to hold less, they're going to hold um, more inventory and buy their stuff, their, their raw materials in today because they're confident they're going to be the selling prices are going to be higher going going forward. Um, and then you have that increase in velocity of money and circulation of money, which add to those pressures. So um, we need to look at some uh, whether some of those second round effects come, come through. Those are the key indicators. Okay, uh, thank you. So kind of switch, switching gears slightly, obviously markets kind of aside from last year um, have been really strong and, and you've been optimistic on, on global, sort of the global economic and market outlook for some time. Is this kind of still your stance? Is, is that still the case? Yes, I remain optimistic on the global economic outlook. We, we're enjoying this powerful economic recovery um, post-pandemic uh, and the economy is firing on all cylinders, whether it's consumption, investment, government spending and global trade and exports are picking up materially. So with the US and UK economies growing in excess of 7% this year and maybe 5% plus next year, um, we've got this powerful economic recovery. That's that's enabling companies to, um, you know, earnings to, to, to be coming very favourably. Um, earnings forecasts are, are being revised up again for both this year and next year. So we've got economic growth, which is very powerful. Um, I tend to agree with central banks at the moment that I think these inflationary pressures are largely going to be transitory and due to these factors that, that we've, we've talked about. So you've got a great economic recovery, um, which is going to continue for a while, and yet going to be we're going to continue to have very supportive policies, both fiscally and monetary, with interest rates staying around current levels for a long time to come, and central banks continuing with their quantitative easing policies. So all of that is very good news for the global economy, um, and it's good news for risk assets as well, um, where you have growth of earnings in the economy, where you have um, in 
powerful policy support, we have lots of liquidity in the system, which we do, and you have valuations which might be a little bit stretched in some areas of the market, for example, some of the mega cap tech stocks, some of the trendy things like uh, cryptocurrencies and these uh, IPOs, SPACs and, and areas of the market are a bit hot. But broadly, if you look across most equity markets, whether it's Europe, Asia, UK, um, even below, beneath a lot of that mega cap tech stuff in the US, valuations of, of, of equities and asset classes look quite reasonable. So, so all of that leads me to continue to be optimistic on the global outlook, both for the economy and for markets. Okay, so what sort of are the, are the key risks to that rosy outlook? So the key risk for markets is undoubtedly inflation. If inflation does turn out to be something other than this transitory short-term phenomena and it develops into a longer-term trend, then whilst it would be welcomed by central banks and governments because, it, as I say, it leads to higher nominal growth and helps inflate away this debt problem, it does become a, a bigger problem. And if interest rates and bond yields start to rise significantly on the back of higher inflation, then that will impact all asset classes, including equities, um, because most asset classes are priced off short-term interest rates and, and bond yields. So the biggest risk um, is inflation. Bear in mind that I've been in this industry for well over 30 years, and in my time, I've only ever really known inflation and interest rates going one way, and that's down. So if that suddenly reverses, that's going to completely change the the outlook for all asset classes, and it's something we're going to have to um, look at and, and factor in. Other risks, um, I think we all expect the economies to bounce, continue to bounce back very strongly, and as you know, people are able to travel, go out more, eat more, um, and get back to some normality. Um, again, obviously, if something happens to disrupt that expectation negatively, then that could be a negative risk for, for markets. Um, there's plenty of reasons geopolitically to be a little bit worried, whether it's um, China, US, and their ongoing um, you know battles. And it's not just about trade. It's about the fact that the China is, is now really seriously competing with the US as a major superpower, but military, technological-wise, and economic-wise. So that's an ongoing battle. We have more tensions in the Middle East that could lead to a higher oil price um, at, at some point. So there's always reasons to be concerned politically and geopolitically. And then finally, China. I, m I mentioned earlier China has started to modest modestly tighten both monetary and fiscal policies in order to, to try and prevent its economy growing at too fast a rate and inflation coming back into the system um, and so on. If China were to tighten too fast, then that could negatively impact the global economic outlook and it would be problematic for markets. Last time that happened really was sort of coming off, off, off about 10 years ago after the great financial crisis when China over tightened and it did lead to a significant um, drop in global economic activity and, and was was pretty um, negative for markets as well. So I don't think it's going to happen this time, but again, it's something that we have to watch. Okay, so um, the sort of the team at the team at Ravenscroft adopt um, a very global and thematic approach, but have they made um, kind of any changes in light of this sort of post-pandemic environment and kind of particularly sort of tying everything together, particularly the threat of higher inflation? Okay, so I think from our perspective, uh, as as you know, um, we basically th our, our approach is very bottom up and and thematic. 
Um, it doesn't mean we ignore the, the top-down economic and macro pictures, but they're very difficult to forecast. And, and even now, as I've said, central banks, with, with all of their resources and expertise, don't really know what, what's going to happen longer term to, to growth and inflation. So we have a very thematic approach. And, and the themes that we like, which are based around ageing demographic, technolo- technological um, revolution and, and disruption, um, increased healthcare spend as the world gets older and lives longer, um, the growth of the consumer in Asia as Asia becomes much, much wealthier, and also some of these issues around the environmental challenges. Those are long-term themes which are very much intact and very attractive investment propositions. And if anything, most of them have, have been enhanced post in the post-pandemic world. So we continue to believe that those themes are going to help us deliver superior returns for our clients long term. However, in the short term, we certainly acknowledge that some things, some aspects of the world economy and and policies are going to be permanently different um, moving forward. And at this particular time, because of the severity and and, and the sharpness of that drop last year which was unprecedented together with the very strong recovery we're seeing and a very fast recovery we're seeing and all the disruption that's causing to supply demand um, inflation numbers uh, and it's causing a load of, of short-term fog we're, we're conscious of the fact that we're having to navigate our way through that fog uh, in the short term for our clients so so we have made some modest changes to our portfolios um, in this period of global reflation where there's lots of money in the system and a powerful recovery um, stocks that, that are perceived to be cheaper, i.e. value stocks, um, and cic- stocks more geared towards that recovery, cyclical stocks, will tend to outperform in that period. So we've added some exposure to UK equities in our portfolios because not only do they satisfy that, but also they're extremely cheap. That Basically, UK assets have underperformed pretty much since the Brexit vote in 2016. And with Brexit and COVID hopefully behind now, that should lead to a major revaluation of UK assets, including UK equities. So, so we've added to that in our portfolios. Um, and also, from a fixed income perspective, infl- if inflation does become a more permanent and longer term problem, then that's going to certainly negatively impact um, some areas of, of fixed income and bonds. So we've just um, reduced our exposure to some of the more vulnerable areas um, of, of that space, which includes, for example, um, investment grade issues uh, and maybe government debt. Uh, and we've increased exposure to some of the areas which should do better in this environment, um, such as global high yield. And also we've added some inflation proofing to our portfolios th- through buying some some uh, US tips, which will do well if inflation does pick up and becomes a, a longer term problem. So it's really... Sticking with what we do best, which is our core long-term themes, but just, as I say, adding this kind of navigation bit to the portfolio to help us through the current um, uncertainty uh, and both recognising the great opportunity investment-wise that that presents itself in in UK um, value and and equities at the moment and adding a bit of inflation proofing in there just in case the rise in inflation proves to be something a little bit longer term. Thank you, Kevin. Um, Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting to see uh, how the next few months play out. Um, But I think that's sort of all. So that kind of concludes our first um, Ravenscroft podcast. Thank you.